me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, again, the amazement that should be ours to think that the God of the universe, the God of all that is, uh, has given to us a book to read and a Holy Spirit to guide us. Um, may we tremble before this word and rejoice even at its hearing. Help us, Father, to understand and to believe and to obey, to live this out so that we can see with our very eyes your goodness and your power and your grace and that the world might see it as well. It begins here. Help us, God, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 6. I want to read verses 17 through, uh, through the end of this chapter, this letter, really, verse 21. I won't be able to take all that up this Sunday. We'll pick up the last two verses next week and pick up the first three this week. First uh, Timothy in chapter 6, please. Hear the word of God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, obviously we're winding down our consideration of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. Remember Paul, apostle sent by Jesus uh, to the Gentiles really outside of Israel. It was his primary focus outside of Israel. Sent to the Gentiles. He was one, this apostle, who came to faith in Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember that rather dramatic story where he met, Paul did meet the resurrected Christ uh, on his way to persecute Christians. And in that moment, he not only was reconciled to God, but also he was called to be this apostle to the Gentiles, which in and of itself was a difficult calling and a miraculous one, an amazing one, because no one would ever think that in those days the Jews and Gentiles would, would ever come together. And yet, here was this gospel of the Lord Jesus, gospel of God, really, uh, going out not only in Jerusalem and in Israel, but outside of that. And so Paul was the one who was called to take that message. It was amazing that he was called to be that very one, because as he uh, called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of all Jews, if you will, one who was dedicated to the law of God, and yet he, this very one who would have denied any place to these Gentiles in the covenant of God, he was the very one sent out to do that, to be that messenger of this Jesus, this gospel. And in his going, he would establish churches. He established a church in this ancient city of Ephesus, and in leaving this church, eventually would appoint his 
dear friend, this one he calls his son in the faith, Timothy, to be the pastor in this church in Ephesus. He doesn't leave Timothy there to his own devices, but rather writes him this letter, two of them really. He writes, them two, writes Timothy two letters to, to teach him uh, how he's to lead that church and, and how that church is to be church in the midst of that ancient city, in the midst of Ephesus. Uh, and, and he says to them that you're to be church because... You're the household of God. You're the very dwelling place of God. You have the very name of God upon you. God dwells among you. You're the very family of God. And you're to live in this place because you've been entrusted, as the church has been entrusted, you've been entrusted with this truth. You're a pillar in support of the truth. And so guard it and maintain it and teach it and live it and proclaim it. All of that, you have this truth. You're entrusted, entrusted with it. That'll, we'll pick that up next week, this guarding of the truth. And so it doesn't surprise us, we've mentioned this over and over again, it doesn't surprise us that one of the key emphasis of, 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 of Paul in this letter to Timothy is, is to guard this truth in such a way that if there are those teaching that which is false concerning this truth, that you're to deal with that. Because you see, this truth is everything to us. Meaning that reconciliation with God, with what this truth is about, this gospel is about, reconciliation with God necessitates that we believe. And it isn't just believing that's important. It's that we believe in Jesus. And so if we get this truth wrong, this truth that's about Jesus, who he is and what he did, then it doesn't matter how much faith we have. If we have faith in the wrong Jesus, if you will, it gets us nowhere. And so this truth must be guarded. People must believe that which is true about Jesus, who he is, what he did, so that there can be, will be, reconciliation with God. We believe in the wrong Jesus. It doesn't help because we're not believing in him. Jesus is this one, Paul writes to Timothy in an earlier chapter, remember, who's the mediator between God and human beings. He's the go-between. He represents both parties in himself. He represents God to us, which he can do because he knows God, because he is God, right? So what better representative of God than one who is God? And he comes to reveal God to us, that God is holy and that God is loving. And that God is good. He reveals all of that to us. And he represents us to God. And he can represent us to God because he knows us because he is us. He's fully God and fully man. And so you see what better go-between than this one who knows and is both, and so he represents us to God. He represents us to God first and foremost as we are to be. That is, he honors God with his life just as we are to honor God with our lives, but we don't. But he represents us then perfectly as this perfect man before God, and he says, here, take me for them, right? I come as them to you. So take me, take my obedience, take my righteousness in their place. And then he takes upon himself the punishment 
for our sin. And thus he pays that as well for us. Now, if we get that wrong, then we haven't anything at all. And so Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, make sure you guard this truth. This is that truth about Jesus, as Jude wrote in his epistle. This is the, this is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. This is, this is the truth that Jesus came to, to not only teach, but the truth that Jesus came to be. And this is the truth, therefore, that he taught his followers, his, his apostles, and he sent them out with this. You remember that time between the crucifixion and the resurrection and the, and the ascension, that time where Jesus had resurrected and, and he was with his disciples and he taught them everything about himself from Genesis through the whole Old Testament and, and all that he had done on the cross, all of that. And so then they took it and Paul was one of those, a beneficiary, not of that particular teaching, but of this meeting with Jesus and the training that he received from the Lord and, and so forth. And he took this message to the Gentiles. That's it. He says, if you, if you don't have that, you don't have anything. So, so keep that. And one of the distortions in Ephesus, one of the distortions in 21st century America is the synchronism of faith in Jesus with financial gain. There were those in ancient Ephesus who were teaching that godliness is a means to gain, a means to financial gain. You might remember Paul makes that very statement in chapter 6 and verse 5. And he says, that isn't true. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is, godliness is to lead us to, to realize who God is and to trust in him, that he's the sovereign one and he's the good one and, and through Jesus has, has, has done all for us, thus we can trust him. And so knowing him, that is being devoted to him, being godly, being devoted to God, uh, means that we should be content with all that God has given to us in and through our Lord Jesus. And even content with what we have. We massaged that a bit when we were back in that section some weeks ago, but, but, but that's the essence of it. And there are these false teachers who are teaching that, 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 that godliness is a means of financial gain. And Paul says, if you get that, if you, if you begin to believe that, then you'll distort who Jesus is and what he came to do, and you'll miss the point, and you won't be reconciled with him. So, Timothy, make sure that, that you correct, that you really correct that, that you correct that teaching. And we see the fruit of that teaching. Notice, uh, middle of verse uh, 2 in chapter 6, Paul says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. So that's the teacher who, who teaches this stuff. And he says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And here's what that teaching produces, he says. Te the, the, the teaching that says that godliness results in financial gain, that that's the guts of it. This is what that teaching produces. He says, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He says, if the focus of attention is loving Jesus for financial gain, 
And what you'll have is a group of people who are envious, who are jealous. Not only that, they, they argue and quarrel with each other. Why? You know why. When money is the focus of attention, and when there's only a limited amount of it, then people argue over it all the time. How many times has money caused great dissension in families? In churches, in friendships, ironically, even in business, in politics. How many times has the love of money truly grabbed the hearts of people in such a way that they're willing to break deep, significant, important, God-given relationships? Very dangerous, this love of money. Paul says it's the roots of all kinds of all kinds of evil. So he says, be guarded about that. Jesus, you remember, put it like this. No person, no man can have two masters. Either he'll love the one and hate the other, or love the one, despise the other. He says you can't really serve both God and money. It's interesting, isn't it, that, God, that, that, that Jesus pits God and money together. Uh, he's saying, here's the, here's the alternative. Here's the one we gravitate towards. Here's the competition, if you will, God and money. That which we can see, that which we accumulate, that which we can have. We have this sense that that's going to be my security. That's going to be uh, my affirmation. Right? The more money I have, the more affirmed I can be in the eyes of people and by them. And even in my own, my, own, my own life, I think, oh, look at this. I've really made it. It's tangible. It's right here. People envy me for this. They, they look up to me because of this. This is my, this is my security. I'm in control now. I, I have power over my destiny because, because I have this accumulated wealth. And, 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 and that's good. He says, oh, there's a great temptation to that. Be very careful. If you, if you, the, the, the danger is this temptation to think that once I have this, I'm set. Remember, there was an occasion in the life of Jesus where a man came to him and said, Jesus, uh, could you settle this dispute I'm having with my brother concerning inheritance? And Jesus, you get the sense that he smiled a bit, scratched and said, so why are you asking me? Why should I be the judge of this? Yeah, ironically, <laughs> He's the very one to be the judge of this. He's the judge of all there is. But, but, but interesting, like Jesus said, why are you coming to me against this? But Jesus' first statement in dealing with that situation is he said, he said, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness or all kinds of greed. And you think, well, Jesus, you could have started a little softer. You know, you could have just sort of worked into this situation a little better. But, but, but Jesus got right to the heart of it. That was it, wasn't it? When there's an inheritance, if there's going to be trouble, it's going to be often over because of greed. It's going to be saying, I want more of this pie than I think I'm going to get. And, and so somehow uh, there's, there's, there's problems. And to caution this man against this covetousness, this greed, he tells a story, tells a parable as we call it. And he says, well, there was this, this farmer who was very successful. So successful that he didn't have enough uh, uh, space in his barns to 
to, to, to put his grain. And, and so here's what he did. He, he, he built bigger barns. And he stored his grains. And he, and he turned, and the way Jesus puts it is like this. He said, he said to his soul, soul, we're set. That's a paraphrase. Soul, we're really okay now for a long time because look at what we have. And then and Jesus said, but no, that night his soul was required of him. I've always wondered about that way of putting it. His soul was required. God called it. Said that soul, come to me, give an account of your life. Meaning this man died and he entered into the very presence of God. And Jesus said, oh, it was not a good place really because, because you see, while he had accumulated a lot of stuff, He wasn't rich towards God. Because you see, part of that expression, be, beware of all kinds of covetous, all kinds of greed, was this line that Jesus added to that. He, he said, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Now, you, you realize that most Americans on a multiple choice test would get that wrong. Right? They would think... We would think that life does, in fact, consist in the abundance of, of, of our possessions. Our responsive reading from Matthew in chapter 6 this morning points to that very fact. Jesus lays out for us, he says, verse 19, do not... Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be, will be also. See, what do we value? What do we call our treasure? What do we desire? What we think about, what we want, what we put our efforts towards getting and having, that is really an exposure of our hearts. That exposes our hearts. What do we think about? What do we desire? What do we really want? And, and that's really then life to us. There's a sense in which if you take that away, then we have no life. Life isn't worth living. Life isn't worth anything at that point, you see. And he says, these treasures on earth, if that's your life, then realize you'll lose your life because they'll all be lost. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. By that he means heavenly things, things that are consistent with his eternal life. We talked about last Sunday that we're to grab a hold of. The things consistent, whether that's godly character, whether that's love to another, whether that's help for another, whether that's whatever that is. He says, that's the essence, you see. That's real life. Grab a hold of that. 
That's real life, you see, because that can never be taken from you. And so that's why the apostle in another place would say that Christ is our life. As long as we have Christ, as long as he is true of us and we know him, then we have life. Whatever else we lose, whatever else is taken away, we we still look to him and say, no, I have Christ, therefore I have life. Not only here, but for all of eternity, that sense that my life is Christ. You remember in another occasion, Luke In chapter 9, Jesus puts it like this. He says, verse 24, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As if your life is the abundance of of your possessions, you will lose your life. Even if the abundance of your possessions equals the whole world. And then he says, wouldn't that be sad? Wouldn't that be sad to gain the whole world and yet forfeit yourself, your own soul, your very life. He says, so lose your life to find it. That is, come trust me. Receive your life, in fact, from me. This rich young man, as we often refer to him, this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, Luke chapter 18, and in a couple other gospels as well. This, this man comes to Jesus and, and says to Jesus, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus calls him up short at that point, and he says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. But he's saying, do you really believe, because you're coming to me just as a regular old rabbi, as a regular old teacher, you think I'm a good teacher? You think that's the best I am, just a good teacher? Do you think teachers can be good? Do you think anyone other than God can be good? Do you think yourself, do you think you can be good? Jesus says, good to all that. But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And in verse 20, Jesus says to this man, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And this man, this rich young ruler man says to Jesus, all these I've kept from my youth. What a statement. You got a sense. But on the one hand, he really believed that. And on the other hand, if you knew him, you'd probably believe that too. Some sense, this guy was as good as they get. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. You get a sense that this sort of obsessive compulsive young ruler probably took out his pencil at that point in his notebook and he was ready to write down the one thing. He says, give me the one thing. I got these other things down. Give me the one thing. I have eternal life. I can get on with my life. Everything's great. And Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Why did Jesus say that? Now you realize that really nowhere else in the scripture we commanded to, to do that. 
to sell all that we have and come and follow Jesus. Oh, yes, we're not supposed to really uh, cling to anything and we come and follow Jesus. We're to die to all these things and come and follow Jesus. But, but this one command, even as we'll come eventually to First Timothy chapter 6, Paul, in t- dealing with rich people, doesn't tell them to sell all that they have and follow Jesus. He gives them a bit of other instruction. It gets a sense that they still have. But, 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 but why does he say this to this man? And he does because, you see, he knows that his stuff, this man's possessions, have the ultimate grip upon his heart. He knows that for this rich young ruler, his savior is his possessions. That he looks to his possessions for his comfort, for his security, for his identity, for his affirmation, uh, for everything. That if he doesn't have these possessions, he doesn't have life. So Jesus says, you'll never get life from them. So if you really want life and you need to sell all of this, give it to the poor, that's life. Really loving someone, really sacrificing the love, that's life. Give it to the poor. And then, of course, come and follow me, trust me. You'll see more of me as time goes on. You'll see the cross, you'll see all of that, you'll get it, you'll understand. So come and follow me. And you know the end of this story. This man goes away sad, the scripture says, because he was extremely rich. He had so much. And that was his treasure. That was his heart. He fell prey to the danger. And Jesus made an astounding statement because his, his disciples were amazed at this because in the minds of his disciples, rich people were blessed people. And so how is it that this man who was so rich thus in their minds, so blessed by God, now be so sad because he couldn't inherit eternal life? They they assumed, yes, it must be eternal life, must be for people like this guy. He did everything he was supposed to do and and all of that. And so so, so how could this be? And and, and, and the disciples uh, looked uh, to Jesus amazed and Jesus made this statement. He said, how difficult... It is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean it's a slam dunk for poor people. It's not talking about poor people at the moment. Poor people have their own issues, because we all have our own issues, because there's something radically wrong with us all. He's talking about rich people right now, but he says, realize this. What's the danger for the rich person? The rich person thinks all is well, because they can trust in what they see, trust in what they have. He says, how difficult is it for those who have well to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying it's impossible for them. It's impossible for a big camel to go through a little teeny eye. But then Jesus came with the great words and said, oh, don't worry. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That is, rich people can still be saved. Why? Because God can do that work in their life. Why? Because that which is impossible for us is possible with him. But, but, but get it, that nobody's going to enter because they've been successful, because they're rich, because they buy their way in. In fact, that's going to be a deterrent to them because they're going to think that they have so much that it can be their security. 
and then somehow God would be impressed with, with all of that. So Paul now writes to Timothy, because there are rich people in the church in Ephesus. Not rich people because they love money necessarily, not rich people because they follow the teaching of the false teachers and think that godliness is a means of financial gain, but they're just simply rich people who come to faith. It happens. So now, what do you do with those people after this whole deal about false teaching, teachers who say that godliness is a means of, of, of financial gain? What about them? How are we to speak to them? I must confess that when I read passages about riches and wealth, I wonder if I can have any perspective at all. And I say that not because I'm particularly rich, but because I'm an American in the 21st century. And historically, relatively speaking, we're rich. I mean, we have stuff that people in previous generations, even just before us, never have even thought to have. We have, we have phones in our pockets. Right? We have all kinds of things. We have television hanging on our walls. Right? And in our pockets. just amazing to us. If you list, when Karen and I used to teach the before we say I do class for pre-marriage people and so forth, we would always have uh, these couples list what are necessities to them. It's amazing what we think are necessities, you know, and I'm such an old guy now, I just, it just, just drives me crazy, right? Because what's a necessity? Well, we all have these lists of things and I wonder, I live in the midst of this. We live in the midst of this. Can I really have any perspective at all? I, I wonder. I worry, actually. As I'm just preparing and things and all the things I read and so forth and so on, I read a number of pa- pastors who commented on this passage, and I realized that their experience is just the same as mine, and that is that it's rare that anybody ever comes into the office to confess ma- uh, the sin of materialism. You get all kinds of other things. But, but, but rarely does anybody just walk in and say, I'm greedy. And you know, the comment of the other pastors, and I reflected on it, I think it's because none of us really think we are. And that's probably the most dangerous place for anyone to be in. I don't know. I, and I just, the guts of it, the guts of me. I don't know. If I get this, I mean, I think, well, I could give away more money. I could, I could uh, live more simply. But even then, I, I don't even know if, if that's it. If, if that could make a dent in, 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 in being caught up in consumption. I mean, we're consumed by consumption. We talk about it all the time, what we're doing, what we're buying, what we got. I mean, really, that's so much a part of our lives. And and I I just tremble before this. I wonder, do do I even, I live so much in it, can I even think about this? What does it really mean? 
That's just my disclaimer. I mean, I never know much, but I know less now, all right? Uh, so Paul writes, so the rich in this present age, he said, there's, there's two sinful tendencies, two temptations that come just very naturally with having. And I'm, true, I'm sure this is true for previous generations. I'm sure this is true for even those who are relatively poor, that these temptations still exist because we have a tendency to live within a socioeconomic bubble. So, so we, we kind of live with, with this group of peers, you see. And, and generally speaking, there are some materially below us. There are some materially above us. And so we always feel better when we look at the conspicuous consumption of those who are above us. And we say, well, I don't do that. I don't have that. And we ignore the people below us because they make us uncomfortable. And that's true in every probably social economic bubble, wherever you plant it. And so again, we get into that. There's always people we feel better than and always people we can ignore. Uh, and so, so these, 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 these sins seem to just go along with, with this, with having anything. Uh, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, so these, these two sins, one, not to be haughty or proud or snobbish. You see, we have a lot. It's just very easy to naturally think we're better than the person who doesn't. It just happens. It's something we must fight against. It's something we must remind ourselves isn't really true. I mean, those who aren't believers have this, I think, this is very simplistic, but have this sort of understanding of the way life is, that every person is born in, in some sort of evolutionary uh, place in history, if you will. Humanity has evolved to a certain extent, and, and, and here we are, we find ourselves in a particular historical, particular uh, material, particular political uh, kind of bubble and, and, and in context, and, and here we are. And in the midst of that, we make decisions, and at the end of the day, we determine ultimately our own destiny. Now, of course, nobody really believes that because everybody knows that stuff happens to us about which we have no control at all, whether you call it luck or fate or karma, whatever it is. And, and yet, the tendency of human beings is this, that when good stuff happens to us outside of our control, we still take credit for it. And when bad stuff happens to us out of our control, we're simply a victim. It's, it's an oversimplification, but, but that's the sense of it. That's how, that's how people, as I read people, as I talk to people, and I read, that's how we understand life. And oh, there's a certain measure of humility. Well, I was in the right place at the right time. But, but always you're being praised for being in the right place at the right time by somebody. That's a good thing. And so, so well, look at me. I must be more blessed than other people because I was in the right place at the right time. So I got this job. I had this opportunity. And, and so my fortunes increased. You see, that's the tendency. The tendency is to get snobbish. If we inherited all the money, we're still snobbish because of our family. If we're in the right place at the right time, and we happen to have more than others, we're snobbish because, well, look at me. I was blessed to be in that position. Doesn't that say something really good about me? That's the tendency of human beings. And so Paul says, I know that. So be careful. Be careful, follower of Christ. Don't let your wealth cause you to be a snob and to be arrogant and to think you're better than, than everybody else because really you're not. The tendency, though, is huge. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is one of the most 
telling passages, I think, at least for me, in, in this, this whole subject. It, it lays out for us this, this human tendency. It, it begins with God speaking, uh, with Moses writing about how it is that God led the Israelites out of Egypt. And, and that whole scenario, I won't read this to you have in time, but, but that whole scenario of how they were led out of Egypt and how God clothed them and cared for them. And we know that during the wilderness time, he gave them manna. They didn't have to plant anything. It just sort of showed up every day. There was their food. There was all that they needed. He protected them and provided for them. And he says, I did this so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I did this so you would always know That what's crucial for you, what's life to you, is my word. That which I say is true. Bank on that. Your life doesn't come from what you eat. It comes from me. I'm the one who's behind all of this. But then notice the instructions given uh, by Moses to the people as they're going to enter this land of promise, this land that God is giving them. Verse 11 in Deuteronomy 8, he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, in other words, you are rich. You have all materially that your barns have overflowed and you've got everything you need. You look at this life and you go, this is great. Then your heart be lifted up. That means you become haughty. You become snobbish. You become proud. You become arrogant. That's what the word haughty means, to be lifted up. He said, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your hearts, my power and and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it's he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And you wonder, how could they ever have forgotten what they, what they went through to get what they have? Because that's who we are. We're forgetters of what God has done for us. We're forgetters of who God is. And so Paul says, be wise, people, when you have enough. Don't be proud, don't be haughty, don't be snobbish. Don't tell yourself, boy, am I not great? Look at this. And then he says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, why these riches will deceive you. They'll make you think all is well when all isn't well. You'll put your trust in them. You'll think everything's okay. All your ducks are in a row, but they're not. So don't put your trust in them, but rather notice how he puts it, trust in God. He's the one who richly provides everything to enjoy. You can enjoy it. 
but give him thanks. Verse 18, they, that is the rich, us, they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That is, he says, listen, you're to reflect what is really life. You're to reflect the life that you've been given. This isn't salvation by works. This is doing good because of what God has done in you and through you to transform you. So do good. That's, that's the guts of your life, to do good. To be rich. You want to be rich in something? You want to be upper middle class in something? In good works. Have people say, wow, that's great. Be rich in good works. And to be generous. You see, this whole spirit of generosity is woven through the people of God all the time. In ancient Israel, there was a great spirit of generosity that existed in the people. They were to tithe. They would get 10% of their income each year to give to those who did ministry, the Levites, and to maintain ultimately the tabernacle and then the temple. They were to give 10% of that, but, but that wasn't it at all. That was like just the beginning. Because they also said, now remember, when you, when you, when you plant your fields and when you harvest, don't get around the edges, leave that for people who don't have as much as you do, so that they can come and, and get it. There was a generosity there. Don't eke everything out of everything. Just but be generous with this. That's, that's, that's who you are. You're generous people. And as you're doing that, you're not saying, oh man, look how much money I'm losing by not being efficient and getting the corners of my fields. You're to be able to say, isn't God great that he's provided for us in such a way that I can leave this so others will be provided for as well? And isn't this a wonderful system because they can come and harvest it themselves and they can get it and, and, and they, they, they won't have to even thank me. They just come and get it and they read it in, 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 this, in, in this word of God, in the, the covenant of God, and they say, thank you, God, that you've instructed your people to do that. And then on other occasions, there was another tithe that was required of the people, and it was this tithe was to help the poor. And so they were constantly giving and constantly giving. Some years they could give 20, 30% of their income so that others would have ministry and others would... And in the early church, the same thing happened. It was instinctive that, that when the church in Jerusalem gathered after the day of Pentecost, when there were many there who had come from other places, they brought to the apostles and said, here, we have this, and some sold land and fields and so forth, and brought the money and said, here, here, here bless these people, help them. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 4, there wasn't a needy one among them. Why? Because there's generosity always in the people of God. And why is that so? Why is knowing Jesus the spark to cause us to be generous? It's because, and it happens when, we don't forget who he is, who we are, and what he's done. The church in Corinth was proud, proud of its teachers, proud of the gifts that they had. And when Paul writes to them, he gives them this word, he said, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that wasn't a gift to you from God? So how can you act proudly now? How, how can you be haughty about all of this? He says, what do you have that you haven't received? And he makes that statement after he's walked them through what Jesus did on the cross. See, we're always to live in the shadow of the cross. I used to tell my kids, 
that one of the things that I hoped they would be in their life was cross-eyed. Right? That they'd never take their eyes off the cross. There's no haughtiness there. When we look at that cross, we see this one who is the mediator between God and man. We see this one who has perfectly represented God to us. And he says, God is holy. And thus, he can't overlook sin. He's just. But also is that God is love. And thus, look what he's done. And then Jesus says, I've come to represent you before God. And I've come to, to show, I've come to show that what you needed was righteousness and you haven't got it, so take mine. And I've come to reveal to you what you deserve and so I've paid the penalty, believe in me. You see, when we live like that, we see that he who was rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Not financially. Oh, we'll have blessings that we can count in glory. And there are great blessings now and all of that. But that richness, you see, it comes by being reconciliated, reconciled with God. This reconciliation that we have through Jesus with God. That's, that's the riches. And we see the generosity of Christ to give. And so we become givers. Do you remember the last story? Zacchaeus. That wee little man, as the song in Sunday school goes. Do you realize what the love of money did to him? Zacchaeus was Jewish and hated by everybody. He was hated by everybody because he sold himself really to the Roman authorities as a tax collector, meaning that not only was the tax collector, the scripture says that he was the chief tax collector, so he had a region. And, and, and the way the law was written there, that, that the Romans required X number of, let's say, dollars from a particular region. And so the tax collector could go in and collect whatever he could. And he would pay the Romans the amount specified and keep the rest. And so here was a Jew going to Jews to collect taxes for the Romans, whom they all hated, and he was, who were over them, and, and he would collect more than what was required, way more than what was required, no doubt with threats and otherwise. And so, because of his love for money, he then became a traitor to his own people. They hated him. The Romans hated him too because they had no respect for that kind of a person. Who could respect that kind of a person? They, they instituted all of this, but they hated him as well because they, they said, you're a despicable person. Anybody would do that sort of thing. Now, they used him, but they hated him. Do you ever wonder why when Jesus came to Zacchaeus' town, he had to climb up a tree to see Jesus? And we know it's because he's short, but he could have gone to the other people that were there and just said, oh, could I please stand over here if I could see better? But of course, he couldn't do that. Why? Because they wouldn't have let him. He couldn't have come close to them. They hated him, and he knew that. So the only way that he could see Jesus was to do his own thing and climb a tree. Of course, you know the story. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. But what's fascinating here is Zacchaeus doesn't invite Jesus to come home with him. Jesus invites himself. It isn't that Zacchaeus says, I accept you, Jesus, 
is that Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I accept you. Now when that occurred, don't you know that Zacchaeus thought, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this Jesus, whoever he is, to come to my house. I've been a despicable character. But yet when Jesus comes to his house, what's the impulse? What's the response? What's, what's just this thing that oozes out of, 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 of Zacchaeus? Certainly repentance, but also generosity. He goes way over and above what anyone would have required, what anyone would have expected, what, what even the Old Testament law required. He was to take what he had stolen from people and add one-fifth to that and give it to them. He says, I'll give four times what I've stolen. I'll give half my money to the poor. Why was all this happening? Well, it wasn't so he could impress Jesus because Jesus wasn't easily impressed. It was just because he had received from Jesus that which he knew he did not deserve. No snobbishness, no haughtiness, no trust in my stuff. Humility, generosity, trust in Christ. The moment we take our eyes off the cross, the moment we put our eyes anywhere else, our security, our comfort, our affirmation, our life is the moment we become snobbish. It's the moment we set our hopes on that which is uncertain. It's the cross, you see. It's the cross of Jesus that brings to us generosity. It brings to us any sense of what real life is. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that our eyes would be on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us when it hasn't been and isn't. So help us, I pray. May, Father, we get a hold of this success, abundance, prosperity, that we have whether we know it or not. And God, help us to be generous in such a way that we're living life. Father, thank you for the blessings that we have and we always know that we don't deserve them. The great blessing of Jesus and his cross, the great blessing of forgiveness of sins, the great blessing of being reconciled to God, the great blessing of being adopted into his family, the great blessing of being declared righteous when we know we aren't, the great blessing of knowing that the Holy Spirit lives within us and works in us to conform us to the image of Jesus, the, the great blessing to know that a day will come when, when we'll see Jesus as he is and be made like him and to enjoy then the great blessings and benefits of being people who belong to God that's amazing to us. And even now in this life, Father, there are blessings that come to us. We thank you for this little baby girl born to Laura and Doug Brown. We ask your blessing upon her. We know her family is thankful. Father, we pray your help and blessing still on Mark Brown as he recovers from last week's surgery and he goes home soon. We trust and 
as he continues to recover and experience other surgeries, that, Father, you would be with Mark and Brenda and Katie as they live this out. We pray that their hope would be upon you and you alone. Father, for those who do ministry in the midst of our community and the world, we pray for them that you would grant your blessing upon them. For all of us, Father, as we have vocations where you've called us to love our neighbor through them, and we pray that we would be faithful in our callings as husbands and fathers, as friends, as parents, as workers in particular areas. And we would not withhold that which we have, but use it to bless others, that Christ may be known. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you there will be elders available to pray up here after the service. Please take advantage of that. I remind you also of grace at a glance, so as you're going out, make sure you walk through and uh, see what is what is there please receive this as God's benediction and now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with every good thing for doing his will working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight and all this through Jesus Christ our Lord and together let us sing and great is your faithfulness and great is your faithfulness you never change and you never fail oh God True are your promises. True are your promises. You never change. You never fail, oh God. So we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. your love and grace why is your love and grace you never change you never fail oh God why is your love and grace and why is your love and grace you never change you never fail oh God so we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. So we raise up holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come.